this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. As I've concluded my Stand in the Holy Spirit sermon series, I gave our congregation an opportunity to ask me questions, and man, they asked me some really good ones. So this episode is just my answers to questions that people asked about standing in the Holy Spirit. I've really kind of already concluded my message series on standing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I asked you guys to please, you know, we have been talking about standing, standing for uh, about 12 weeks uh, by that point. And so I asked you to to give me some questions that you might have about standing. Uh, What does it look like? What does it mean? How can I, whatever you need to ask about standing. And you gave me a lot of questions, a lot of really good questions, almost all specifically about the Holy Spirit. Spirit and that whole aspect. So I'm going to do my best today to respond to some questions. And I'm just going to tell you, um, you asked some good questions. And so uh, I'm going to try to tackle these as best as I can. And, um, you know, I'm going to start with the uh, lightest, most easily answered, non-controversial question at all. What's your view on speaking in tongues in the present day? Not controversial at all. Uh, Is it still a relevant thing? If no, why not? If yes, why don't we hear people uh, in the church speaking in tongues today? So, okay, buckle your seatbelts because we're gonna talk about this. I really do hope you'll jot maybe some notes down. I don't have fill in the blanks for you, uh, but I want you to understand as best as you can. And, and, I, and I wish I could fully understand, but this is a huge, big topic. And uh, I wanna be really, really as clear biblically as I can be on this whole thing because Let's just be honest, the gift of tongues is maybe one of the most beautiful, amazing gifts that God ever decided to give to his people. It's an amazing, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift. And I want to handle this topic very clearly. So when we talk about tongues, I wanna make sure we're using good terminology because our terminology affects our theology And I never want to insult the greatness of God by wading carelessly into deep theological waters. Part of my job is to accurately handle the word of truth. And I just just have a kind of a standing pledge to you that um, I will do the best I can do any given week to be deeply in the word, to research, to read, to cross-reference, to study, to read other writers and commentators on the word. And I'll do my best to always handle that. But when you get to sensitive topics like this, it's even more imperative. So I wanna handle it in a good, authentic way. You know, so when you talk about tongues, you know, it only, it only, it seems to divide the church because you got extremes out there. You got extremes on both sides, right? You know, on one side, you got the stoic frozen chosen and worship time comes on Sunday morning. And by the way, come on, our band, can you beat our band anywhere? The answer is no, they are awesome. Uh, Jeff. Thank you for leading us. I don't know if you're even in the room. Thank you for leading us the way that you do. Uh, Tech team in the back, wow, you guys are awesome. We just, we get to come before the throne because of your leadership. Thank you very much. I just, I don't think you can beat it anywhere. So um, where was I? Oh yeah, I'm talking about the stoic frozen chosen. I know some of those. Uh, and you worship, you know, when the band's playing there and they're, and they're worshiping their guts out and your arms are stuck to your legs and you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna raise them, you're not gonna, you know, some, some of us are that way. 
And then on the other extreme, you've got those that are roll around on the floor, foaming at the mouth, you know, uh, praising God, you know, with whatever extreme. You got extreme. You got extremes. Just extremes on both sides. And and here's what I want to say. I know I know a topic like this can be divisive, but let me just tell you: whether you're on this extreme or whether you're on that extreme, we are all on the same team. We're all on the same team, okay? We're all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that makes us one. And our job is not to pick up our, well, you're not raising your hands enough. You're doing inappropriate worship. That's not our job. Our job is to glorify God in heaven and to be one with each other. We're reading a book about that right now. Hey, Rodriguez says, I didn't even see you on the front row. It's good to see you guys. Oh, man. No pressure. Now I got to really be on it. Um, they drove up from Woodstock. <laughs> um, okay, so it's our job to be one on this. And here's the reality. Whichever extreme you're in, we actually believe in about 98% the same thing. All right, we're, we're about now. There's so much more that unites us than divides us. So we should not let this be something that keeps us from unity with each other. Can I get an Amen. Okay, so I, I just want to be really, really clear about that. And, and so um, I, I want to use good terminology and I want to talk about this right. So just so you know, um, the term for a person that believes that the sign gifts that you see in Acts, the person that believes that the sign gifts have ceased today, that is called a cessationist. You know, we believe the gifts have ceased. But the term for the person that believes they are still valid for today, you know, we believe they're still going on now, that's a continualist. So you got the cessationists on one side and the continualists on the other side. And I'm just gonna confess to you, I'm kind of somewhere in between the two. You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a little bit of a fence straddler. I, I, I'm not a cessationist. I actually believe the Holy Spirit can do whatever the heck he wants whenever the heck he wants to, right? And who am I to tell God who he is and what he will and won't do? I, it's not my, that's not my job. That's not, he's God and I'm idiot redneck boy. So I don't know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know. God can do whatever he wants. But I tell you who does tell us what God will and won't do, it's God. God himself has been very generous to define himself in his word and to reveal how he works in us, in his word. His word is our ultimate authority. And so I'm not gonna go on my theology and let my theology supersede and define the word. I'm gonna submit to the word of God. And I'm gonna be faithful to look in his word, up and down, backwards, forwards, Old Testament, New Testament, and see what God is in fact doing and how he does it. And I'm gonna let God tell me, not me tell me. Is that, is that good, is that okay? So that's kind of what I wanna to do today about this amazing, amazing gift. When we look in the New Testament, the Greek word for tongue is the word glossa. You know, you've seen the word glossary. Uh, so glossa, singular, glossolalia, plural, uh, that's what it means. Today in the modern church, not historically, but today in the modern church, when we think of tongues, we kind of think of two different things, right? There's two different mentalities we've got about tongues today. That wasn't the case for most of Christian history, but it is the case today. And we think of kind of two things. We think of the human language that is speaking in tongues that someone else in a foreign land might understand, right? And we also think of this prayer language, you know, that's the heavenly language, the tongues of men and angels, and that's the language that nobody in this world really understands. It's a language between you and God. So we think about these two things. I wanna kind of explain what they are for. Um, whether you believe in these or not, this is why God gives these gifts um, and how it works. So biblically, the human language, speaking in a, in a different language that other humans can understand, is meant for public consumption. The whole goal of it is so that people will hear the gospel and, and see and know the truth. The prayer language is meant for private. It's between you and God. 
All right, so it's not to be shared all out everywhere, all over the place. Um, the human language is, the purpose of it is it's an authenticating sign. So it's given to people, you know, you see it in Acts chapter two, uh, that it's given to people uh, so that when the Holy Spirit falls, the people go out in the road and they're speaking in other languages that other people understand and it authenticates that God is doing something, you better pay attention. Um, the prayer language is more edifying. It's spiritually nourishing to the believer that practices that. Uh, next thing I want to see is that the human language biblically requires interpretation. If you're going to practice this gift, uh, Paul is very clear about it, that it requires that you speak one at a time, you say the thing that you're going to say, and then somebody else needs to interpret it. If there's not an interpreter, you keep your mouth shut. The prayer language, Paul seems to recommend interpretation um, he seems to kind of say that maybe you, it'd be better if you had interpretation, but it's just kind of not really super clear. The prayer language, not everybody has it. It's a gift, but not for everybody. And the, sorry, the human language is that way, but also the prayer language is that way. Not everyone has it. It's a gift for certain people uh, that God chooses to give. Whoops, like all the gifts. Sorry, I just kind of blew it there. Um, Next thing on the list is the human language is unquestionable. You'll look in the scripture and it's, it's, it's there, man. You see it prophesied, you see it happening, and there is teaching about it. It's unquestionable that it is a godly, biblical thing. The prayer language is controversial. There's only a couple, really, of Christian denominations, for example, that practice that, and then there are several that do not. Some people say it's really there in the Scripture. Some people say that it is not in the Scripture. And the human language uh, version is very detailed. Like, you see it happening, and not only was it prophesied, not only is it taught about, but you actually see how it happens. Luke, for example, there in Acts 2, when the people begin to speak as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance, it clearly, you know, he links the word glossa with the word uh, dialectos, which means dialect. People can understand them in their own dialect or foreign language. So it's very detailed. There's a lot of stuff about it. The prayer language is a lot more vague. I mean, if you're going to do an actual study on this, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's implied here and there, but there's no real clarity on it. So since we've got kind of two different things going on here, and since this one tends to be controversial and vague, I'm, I'm going to skip this one for today because I don't even wanna to try to get into all that. I just, I wanna talk about the one that I can really point to very specific things about. Is that cool if I do that? I'm gonna talk about the human language version of tongues. When you look in the scripture and you actually do the study on it, other than prophetic statements about this gift, you only find it in Acts. You find it all through Acts from almost the very beginning all the way through. You find it in Acts, uh, and you find it in three chapters in 1 Corinthians. So um, you, you can only look in those two places, and so you can scour all the information about it fairly quickly. And remember, this is an authenticating gift. It was given to uh, very clearly in Acts, those early uh, apostles, early disciples uh, who were experiencing the Holy Spirit coming on them for the first time and they had no New Testament. You know, they didn't have a church home to go to. They didn't have seminaries to train pastors. You know, they didn't have any of that stuff. So this was a, this was a brand new thing and it was an authenticating gift. In fact, what you see is you see Jesus describing this himself at the end of the book of Mark. This is the last few verses of Mark. I'm just gonna show you what Jesus says here. He's, he's prophesying about the Holy Spirit coming, and he's saying these miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new languages. There it is. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. They, if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. 
Uh, some of you try that real hard a lot. I know you drink a lot of poison right now. I know. Um, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. And then the very last two sentences of Mark that come right after this, they kind of summarize. So Jesus prophesies it and then they kind of summarize. The next two sentences summarize really the book of Acts. It says, when the Lord Jesus finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. So there it is. There's, there it is in Mark showing us that this is an authenticating gift. So I don't want to just look in Mark, obviously. I want to look at Acts and I want to look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We're not going to have time to look at all of this today. In fact, we're only going to have very little time. I'm just trying to answer some questions. And this is the longest one, so I put it first. But when I look and I do the study, I'll read books that have written. I've, I've read books on both extremes, and I'm left with questions, as you should be. I'm left with questions. When I actually study God's Word, it, it raises questions in my mind. Doesn't it raise questions in your mind? And so I have questions about this. You know, there are some people in some of the extreme corners of Christianity that say that you can only know you have the Holy Spirit in you if you speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really one of us. Well, that's very divisive right there, isn't it? So I, I, I hear that, I hear that expression and I, I, I know that there's, a, there's real people that have built a theology around this idea. And so that causes me to ask questions. If that's true, if it's true that it's that important to God that I must speak in tongues in order to have the Holy Spirit, if that's true, then um, why don't we see the evidence of that anywhere else outside of Acts and a little bit of instruction about it in 1 Corinthians? Why isn't it through all the rest of the epistles? Why don't we see that in all the other stuff? We, we barely have any insight into it as it is. Um, why don't the apostles ever direct us to them? I mean, you look all through all of the letters that the apostles wrote and no one ever says, you should seek the gift of tongues. Nobody ever says anything like that. So why don't they direct us that way? Um, here's a big one for me. This is, this is one that as I was reading and I had, you know, uh, there are very detailed requirements for church leaders. I just look back there, I see Tom Stigler, he's one of our deacons. And Tom, you and I know, we've studied him, there are biblical requirements that the apostles wrote. If you're gonna be a leader in the church, a deacon or an elder, you must line up with these requirements. And there's a lot of them. They're very, very detailed. And if tongues is so important, why aren't, why aren't speaking in tongues part of the requirement? I mean, if it's one of the most important things for you as a Christian, shouldn't your leader be required to possess that? But yet they're not mentioned. All of the requirements have to do with fruit, not gifts. So I just wonder, I just wonder about that. Um, I also have to ask the question, where are they? Where are tongues in church history? You know, if you actually read church history, you know where you see them in Acts and then they seem to kind of disappear until around 120 years ago. So if you can't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't speak in tongues, then does that mean that for almost 2,000 years there were no real Christians? Is, is that what that means? Um, so I, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm asking these questions. I'm not attacking the gift of tongues I believe the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. And I believe that he gives gifts generously. I just don't like it when people supersede the scripture with their theology. Does that make sense? So I'm just asking these questions. And, and when I study the scripture, here's the conclusion that I have a difficult time escaping. Um, when I'm talking about the human language tongues all I can really gather from reading scripture is that you see a timeline of progression and it seems, and I said this just last week, it seems that signs were the way the spirit worked early and fruit took a season. 
You, know, you gotta cultivate that fruit. It doesn't just pop up. And so since the fruit doesn't just pop, the Spirit worked in a different way early on to validate His people, His messengers. One clue into this might also be just a simple looking at the timeline. Here's the timeline of when the New Testament was written. I'll just let you soak on that a second. So here's the life of Jesus back here, right, before and up to the beginning of the timeline. So Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension all happens, um, you know, before 35 AD. And then you got a time period where nothing is written yet, and then all of a sudden you got all the, the what we have today is the New Testament, all these letters start being written. It's easy for us to think, you know, well, the first ones written were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Sure, because they come first in the New Testament, but no, um, you see that, that Matthew wasn't written until later. There he is right there. In the late 70s, Mark was actually the first one written. I love Mark. Uh, it's the most succinct, quick, moving gospel, action-oriented. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written actually pretty late. It's easy to think Revelation must have been the last one, but no, there were several other letters written after that. But if you kind of take out all the non-Paul stuff, if you just look at the writings of Paul, because remember, other than the historical account of Acts, the topic of tongues is only handled by Paul, not by John, not by Peter, uh, not by the gospel writers, only handled by Paul. So if you just look at the writings of Paul, you'll only find him addressing it in three chapters of 1 Corinthians in one of his earlier books. You don't see him even ever mentioning it in his middle or later books. So I want us to look at what Paul says really briefly about it in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And um, I just wanna be real clear about why Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians, the letters to the Corinthians because the church at Corinth was the problem church. I don't know if you've read these letters, but there's some tough love letters, am I right? They aren't, oh, I love you, I miss you, I wanna be with you, you're my everything. No, they're like, what the crap is wrong with you, letters? <laughs> Have you read these? They are harsh because the church at Corinth had some bad, crazy junk going on. Now, I just want to be clear. Um, I've listened. I, I try to do my research. I've listened to several sermons about out of this book, 1 Corinthians, and one of the sermons I listened to is a long sermon uh, from 1 Corinthians, and it was from a pastor here in North Georgia that's all about the gift of tongues. And the first thing he does as he's opening his sermon is he, is he starts to draw a picture of the Corinthian church. And he totally misrepresents why Paul writes the letter and who the church at Corinth was. No scholar thinks that the church at Corinth was a super spiritual, had access to all the inner secrets of God. They all agree, by all the commentaries you want, they all agree that the church at Corinth was God's problem church at the time. So Paul's writing this letter, and all you gotta do, you don't have to even buy a commentary, read the letter. They were getting drunk at communion together. They had people sleeping with each other recklessly, had one guy sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul's hundreds of miles away writing to them going, dude, I can see your crap from here, clean it up. And so he writes these, he actually writes three very harshly worded letters and, and we're missing one of them. We just, it's lost to history. We don't have the very first one. We have first and second Corinthians, which are actually the second and third Corinthian letters. Um, and apparently the first one was the hardest talking letter to this, I don't wanna say deviant church, but dude, this church had gone off the rails. And so he writes this letter to them and it's a, it's, it's a tough letter to work through. And as you're reading this letter, uh, he gets, he, he's, he's talking to him, he's saying, you are not who you say you are. You are messed up in the head, dude. And there is stuff wrong with you. 
clean it up, get it right, straighten it out. And then he gives them a lot of instructions on how to do that. By the time he gets to 1 Corinthians 12, he's making a case. He, he makes one big case in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It's one big thing. A lot of people like to cherry pick verses when they're preaching sermons. I do sometimes, but to understand what Paul's saying, you gotta read all three of these very important chapters. And he's saying to them in 1 Corinthians 12, he makes a big argument at the beginning, saying to them that you assign so much importance to these showy, flashy gifts. You love all the speaking in tongues and the, all the everything, it's great. And he, he's not attacking this, the, this gift at all. He is an encourager of the gift. In fact, he even says at one point, man, you don't even know what's speaking in. I speak in tongues more than you do. Okay, so Paul's not attacking this gift, but with the church at Corinth, he's saying, look, you, you place so much importance on that. And then he concludes his argument about that. He concludes his idea about you're putting the emphasis on the wrong thing by saying this statement. He says, but now let me show you a way of life that's the best of all. Some translations say, I'm gonna show you a much more excellent way. In other words, you love the gifts, but let me show you something better than the gifts. And then what he does is he goes into one of your favorite passages. The very next thing he says is this. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be what? Nothing. Nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. He says, love is patient and kind. You can have all the gifts, you can do all the things, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last. How long? Forever. Now, even now in the 21st century, our knowledge is partial and it's incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and I thought and I reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. He's talking to these people who are acting like a bunch of children. And he's saying, grow the heck up. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And he says, he wraps it up saying this, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, love. He's saying, look, you can get all wrapped up in the gifts, but he's saying, God isn't gifts. God is love. I don't know who said it, but I don't wanna just show you the gifts, I wanna show you the giver of the gifts. And if you don't have love for your brother, you're nothing. So I don't care if they're 
hands are stuck to their legs. You love them. I don't care if they're rolling around on the floor. You love them. Because without love, you're nothing. This is what lasts forever. Love is the first of the fruits of the Spirit. And I think what Paul is trying to say here, this is what I want to do, is to choose the fruit over the gifts. I'd much rather you show the fruit of the Spirit than demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, use the gifts. You've all been given gifts. We all have gifts. But the purpose of the gifts is to produce love, to produce fruit. How are we doing? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> okay, that's the end of the first question. Everybody okay on that? All right. Just trying to answer questions. Why don't you ask me a yes or no question? I would like that. Okay, question number two. Another Holy Spirit question. If at Pentecost the Holy Spirit moved in on Christ's followers, what was the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity pre-incarnate Christ? That's a very well-worded question, Rebecca Cummings. Thank you, resident theologian Rebecca Cummings. Um, so what, in other words, the way I would have asked you, what was the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament? We saw him in the New Testament. What was he doing in the Old Testament? That's really what she's kind of asking. And what I want to say is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is doing kind of mostly the same thing he does in the New Testament. In other words, I want to say he's very active, but he's less obvious. He's very, very active, but he's less obvious. Just a couple of quick ways that we see him. We see him clearly participating in creation. You know, the earth was formless and void and the spirit hovered over the waters. And he's one of the three in the us, right? Let us make man in our own image, right? So he participates in creation. And then really the, the big thing that he does in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, is he produces faith. Right, so I was reading Hebrews 11 the other day and it gives that long list of saints of the Old Testament, you know, people who, who believed and had faith and looked forward to what God was gonna do in Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that produces faith in anyone. So he, he's the one that engenders Abraham when God says, get up from where you've been living and go to where I will show you. I'm not gonna tell you where, not gonna tell you how much it's gonna cost you. Not gonna tell you how long it's gonna take. Just get up and go. I'll show you. Trust me. And it's the Holy Spirit that engenders faith in Abram to say, yes, Lord. And he got up and he followed. That's the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament. You also do see him indwelling and empowering believers. But it's a very different thing than the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and permanently dwells within a believer, a Christian, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So we are, because of Jesus, a holy temple. But in the Old Testament, they were cleansed temporarily by the blood of the sacrificial animals. So they weren't perfectly clean and God doesn't abide long-term in an unholy temple. So you see him coming upon believers in the Old Testament and empowering them to do supernatural things, things that were over their heads beyond their abilities, and then you see him backing away. See that with David, you see it with Saul, you see it with the judges. Can you think of one? Moses, Elijah, Samson is a big one, very, very clear about that one. Noah, so you see him, you see him doing that. He steps in, but then he steps away. So that kind of leads me to the next question, question number three. This was Susie's question. It's a good question. Can the Spirit come into you first and then lead you to Christ? It's a really good question because we just said that it's the Holy Spirit that produces faith in us. So can the Spirit live in you and then later lead you to Christ? Another person asked me the question, aren't you born, like as a baby born, with the Holy Spirit? So kind of similar to the same question. Again, I wanna be careful on the terminology on this. Uh, the Holy Spirit does produce faith in us. Uh, Jesus tells us that. Um, 
Humans can only reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. It's the Holy Spirit that produces fruit in us. Paul says, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And look at this, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't have an honest confession of faith without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does produce that. It's the Holy Spirit that calls us to Christ. We say that no one can come to Jesus except the Holy Spirit call them. So that being said, no unbeliever can have the Spirit living in them, right? No unbeliever because it's not a holy temple, right? The Spirit, the God, a holy God doesn't live inside of an unholy temple. So uh, Scripture is thankfully very clear about this. Um, Jesus says, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit, he leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you, disciples, pre-Holy Spirit arrival, you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Uh, Paul says people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. So uh, unbelievers do not have the Holy Spirit living in them, but any unbeliever can have the Holy Spirit by repenting and trusting in Christ. That's good news, right? Anyone can. That's what Peter said in Acts they're like, what do, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? And he says, every one of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I did have somebody ask me the question, so wait a minute, does that mean that baptism is required, water baptism is required for receiving the Holy Spirit? Uh Here's what I wanna say, again, trying to be careful and, and not wade carelessly into the deep water. Uh, no and yes is what I wanna say. So for Peter, for Peter and for those early disciples, repentance and baptism went together hand in hand. You didn't do this thing that we 21st century American Christians do where we've separated repentance from baptism and you might have become a Christ follower when you were 10 but you didn't want to get baptized and now you're 30 40 50 and I'm going to get to it one day so does that mean you're not a Christian until you get water baptized no but I'm not sure I, I'm not sure how you can claim to be a Christ follower, follower when you won't take step number one. So if, you, if you're unwilling to follow him with the very first step that's prescribed for us in scripture, are you a follower of Christ? That's why I say no and yes, because I'm not sure that you should expect God to lead you anywhere because he's already led you to step one and you didn't do it. Does that make sense? How you doing? <laughs> this is fun. It's, it's nerd, nerd city up here with uh, digging. I don't know. How you doing? You doing okay on that? Okay, so I don't understand the whole baptism maybe later thing when that's step one for us. I mean, heck, if it was important enough for Jesus to get baptized before doing any of his ministry, why wouldn't that be priority one for us? Okay, uh, finishing this up. Uh, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone and new life has begun. So uh, the spirit lives in believers followers of Christ okay ready for the next question okay because I'm running a little bit long is that is that okay are you with me for a couple more questions real quick okay you drove all the way from Woodstock you might as well get your money's worth 
you have another question? Oh, okay. I, we're going to try to answer a question off the cuff. That's always dangerous. Oh, that's a great question. The question is, how do I repent of my sins if I was baptized as an infant? Great question. I've got a friend um, who is on campus, but she's not in the room right now. She struggles with this herself. Uh, she wasn't baptized as an infant, but she was raised in church, and she doesn't remember a time when she wasn't a Christian. You know what I'm saying? It's one of those things where you, you got saved at such an early age, you don't even know. Here I am talking into a microphone. I'm talking about being careful. And <laughs> so, all right. So she's, a lot of people struggle with this. I was raised in church. Um, and so I struggle with how do I repent for my sins? And the clear mandate of Scripture is that repentance is not a once and done act. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle of the follower of Christ. So I know, I know we make a big deal about the moment. You know, the moment you walked the aisle, cried the tear, prayed the prayer, you repented of your sins. That's important, but that's not your lifestyle necessarily. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, then you will be living a lifestyle. I live a lifestyle of repent. I, dude, there's been times I've stood right there in front of that subwoofer and repented of something the Holy Spirit just smacked me with. Um, repenting means to turn from your old and turn to his new. That's what it means. So I'm relying on the grace that God gives me through Jesus Christ who died on my behalf for my sins. He paid the price so that I don't have to. And he rose again and he gives me the ability to have that spiritual life that comes through the spirit. Now, I wanna just throw one little flag up for you. If you, if anybody is relying on a decision somebody else made for you, I, I want you to be careful about that because you have to make this decision yourself. You're not born into, you're not born by the flesh and just the water into the body of Christ. You're born by the blood of Jesus that covers your sin. You have to repent and receive that gift. So I would encourage you, uh, as Paul says, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. And that means to look at what scripture says about it and see if my life matches up. If I'm a person characterized by repentance and faith, okay, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm turning from my sins, turning to him always for the rest of my life. Does that answer your question at all? Does that help you or does that tick you off? Good, okay. Okay. I didn't know, I thought maybe you'd come up here and tackle me or something. <laughs> Good question, very good question. I'm glad you asked that, thank you. Um, okay, this, I thought this was a good question. If someone who's previously professed belief in Christ and continues to speak belief says they're a Christian but doubts what he can do, maybe what God can do, I'm not sure, why is this? Is it a demon, is it unbelief? So someone who comes to Christ and says they're a Christian but living in doubt, is that, a, is that the result of a demon? Is it the result of unbelief? And my answer is, sure. Yes, yes. I mean, what causes you to be tempted to doubt? I could point to a thousand different things, right? I mean, yes, Satan wants you to doubt, so he's gonna send the demons to get you and to pull you into doubt. But I also wanna be careful and give credit where credit is due. And I don't wanna give Satan any more credit than he deserves. James is really clear to us. And he says that any person, or sorry, each person is tempted. Look at this. When he's lured and enticed by his own desire, something that's inside of him. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Another translation says sin, fully grown, gives birth to death. I think that's an interesting phrase. I, I like this phrase better. 
because I can just say it and not think about it, but think about death being born in your life. There's a whole other set of potential theological implications on that. So I like this, brings forth death. Sorry, that's just an aside, sorry. So here's what I want to say. Um, anybody have this happen in your life ever? Tom, you ever have that happen in your life? You ever have this happen in your life? Okay, Tom, thank you. Here's what I want to say. All of us doubt to some degree. I'm the pastor. I doubt to some degree. I doubt. Now, I don't wake up in the morning and be like, mm, I don't think God's real. It's not, it's not that kind of doubt. My doubt is probably a lot like your doubt. I, I can see it on you. And I can see it on me. You know, when I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's hard, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna accomplish that, I'm gonna reach that goal that I think God set for me, but it's hard, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut corners. You know, I'm gonna sneak around. I, I'm gonna do it in maybe inappropriate, ungodly ways. You know, when I cut corners, that's doubt talking. You know, you're not good enough or God's not good enough to make sure that thing he's called you to is gonna happen. When I lie to cover myself so I don't experience consequences of something, when I lie, that's doubt talking because, you know, God says, don't lie. In fact, he says, liars go to hell. But if I'm lying, I'm really saying, well, I doubt it. You know, I doubt it. God's not going to send me to, I mean, not me to hell. Ooh, look at me. <laughs> right? So I doubt God. I doubt his word by lying. What about giving? Giving generously is so important to Jesus. Right? Did you know that Jesus talked about giving more than he talked about heaven and hell combined? For Jesus, you and me being generous givers is more important than you and me knowing about heaven and hell. Apparently, the mark of a Christ follower, a true Christ follower, is a generous giver. God loves a generous giver. That's what the word says. So when we don't give, when we don't make a regular habit of self-sacrifice in our financial lives, we're exclaiming doubt against God. How you doing? So this is kind of a big deal. And our doubt puts us in a dangerous situation. Am I right? James says this. Let me back it up one. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. God is a generous giver, but let him ask in faith with no doubting because the one who doubts is tossed back and forth. Don't know which way you're going, can't see where you're heading, you're just tossed around like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And he goes on and he says, that person, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Doubters are unstable, double-minded. We talked about it a week or two ago where I talked about you have one foot in your old life and one foot in the new life and you can't figure out and that new life that old life keeps clawing at you trying to pull you back in am I right pulling you back in but what happens is the more you pulled in the more you doubt and here's the reality doubt means that we've judged God and we say you're not worthy of being God I know better than you that's what doubt really is am I right so characteristics of a doubter, a doubter that judges that God isn't worthy, a doubter is too busy to read the word of God. 
Because you'll hear some old guy like me at the front of the room saying, God's word is truth, it's light, it's so important for your life. But you're like, no, dude, I'm busy. I doubt it's really that important. I need to get to work. Doubters are okay with sin in their lives. God hates sin. No, I doubt it. I'm gonna hang on to some of it. Doubters are not interested in serving the church. The body of Christ is who Jesus died for. Jesus loves the church, but will show up late and sneak out early and won't bother serving the very thing that Jesus laid his life down for. Doubters filled with worry and fear. Doubters are not generous. Doubters have anger. Doubters are easily offended. Doubters are unsatisfied in their lives. Doubters need to be in control. Because if it's worth doing, you better do it yourself. That's the phrase. Do it yourself. No, no. If you want it done right, you do it yourself. I got it wrong. Sorry. Okay, you were right. Uh, doubters manipulate the circumstances to get what they want, and doubters are entitled. They fight for their own rights. That's unstable. That's double-minded. The problem is we have a low view of God. We've judged him to be unworthy of being God in our lives. No wonder you're unstable. You got no anchor to anchor to. Got no rock to stand on. No wonder you're unstable. You wanna build your house? How can you build it if you're a doubter? Because you're building it on yourself if you're a doubter. Am I right? Hello? How you doing? Everybody okay? So what we need is a, we need a high view of God. We need to know a God that we can trust. We need to, to reread Jeremiah's words. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom. Don't trust in yourself. Or the powerful boast in their power. Don't trust in yourself. Or the rich boast in their riches. Come on. Those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. A high view of God is what we need because when we have a high view of God, you won't be too busy to read the word. You will love the word of God. You'll have a deep conviction of sin. You'll experience peace through the storms. You'll be a forgiving, generous, serving, joyfully person. The things of this world will grow strangely dim. And your worship of him will be driven by the truth of who he is, not by your emotional state of the moment. You'll have a boldness in sharing the gospel. Right, if you're really, really having a high, high view of God, you'll see your life in this world the way he sees it. I think that's why Isaiah says, those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Isn't that what you want? It's all in trusting him, not doubting him. It's in trusting him. So, so my challenge on that whole deal is to trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to thank you three of you that know that song so yeah so I I said <laughs> yeah so I said I would answer questions but I know that was a sermon I know um, let me see what I can get through quickly here because I know I'm running late are y'all doing okay I'm trying to get through this quickly. Um, um, there was a question about being filled with the Spirit. Um, if you want to hang around after, I'll tell you about that one. Um, I want to answer one more question, and this is a good one, and I know several people had this question. We all have people, don't we? Here's the question. There will be no tears in heaven, but what will that mean about those we leave here? How will we not be sad if we find out that they are not there? And this is heavy, isn't it? Because we all have people. 
Some of us have siblings. Some of us have children or parents, friends, family members that we don't think are going to be there and seem to have no interest in being there with us. And I hope, I hope just thinking about that creates a sense of urgency for you to be on your knees praying for those people. Am I right? I mean, I, I, I hope that we're always praying for our lost friends. It's amazing to me how many times we stop the meeting or we end the group and we say, all right, what do we need to be praying for? And it's always sick, 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 sick. And we forget to pray for those that we love that are not gonna be there. I hope we have a sense of urgency about that. So how will we not be sad? because obviously some of ours won't be there. So I've heard this explained in several different ways. I'm gonna do the best I can uh, with saying this. First of all, I want you to know that I believe in heaven, you will be fully you. You will be the ultimate version of you. You're not gonna be some wisp of wind. You're not gonna be an angel, hate to break it to you. Especially some of us. <laughs> you're not gonna be you're not gonna be floating around with wings and a halo playing a harp and staring at clouds all day. That's not the way the new heaven works. That's not the way it works. Thank goodness. The way the scripture describes our condition after all this is over is the new heaven and the new earth, and we will live in the city of of God. So we're not going to be floating around on clouds. We'll live in the hustle bustle city. And some of you are going, dang it, I left the city to come to LJ, <laughs> right? But this will be like no city you've ever seen before. There will be no traffic in this city. There will be no crime in this city. There'll be no homeless in this city. There'll be no pain, no suffering, no elections in this city. No government except for just God being himself. In fact, in fact, it, it says this thing about that city. It says there will be no sun to light the city for the glory of God will shine brightly. And I love that because, yeah, there will be no sun because all of the giant balls of burning gas will be over and gone this physical universe will be ended and there'll be a whole other existence. We'll have new bodies in the new city. And, and we're not, the light comes from him. And I think that's awesome to think about that his glory so shines that that's all the light we'll need. But I think there's something more than just wavelengths of energy. I think, I think that what it's saying is that his glory will shine so brightly that it will outshine everything else. That seeing him and his glory will be so overwhelmingly bright that all of our darkness will be gone. So there will be none of that past marriage that was disastrous. There'll be none of that past brokenness that you had. There'll be none of that old addiction and none of those regrets. None of that stuff will exist anymore because his light will outshine all the rest and eliminate the darkness. You and I won't just be happy to be one day in heaven. We will become the absolute ultimate versions of ourselves and every atom of your being will finally all be in line with what he created you to be. Everything about you and the existence of everything will all finally be the way it's supposed to be. And it'll be so good, so good that everything else will fade into the background. That's what I believe about the new heaven and the new earth. A couple of years ago, my daughter got married in hot, hot, hot Florida. It was hot. We didn't have air conditioning. She got married outside in a swamp. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. 
So we're down there in, in, the, in the swamp and it was the most joyful day, maybe one of the most joyful days of our lives. My wife tearful with tears of joy. Also on the same day, my wife's father died. And she was heartbroken, heartbroken by this loss that she experienced. But that loss could in no way diminish the joy of the wedding day. Because the wedding day is that good. And when we experience the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we get to see Him face to face, I believe His glory will so outshine everything else. It won't make it less it's just going to overpower everything. Does that make sense? Okay, well, that's the last of the sermons I'm going to preach today. Um, and that's the last of the questions I have time for. Thank you for giving me your questions. Mm-hmm.